when we contemplate the human condition, we look at our own lives, we look around us, we see the so many different kinds of stress and confusion and hurt and being off balance. We see a lot of bad stuff. We see a lot of cruelty, injustice, greed. And we see that there's perhaps within each of us uh, some sense that there's a higher capacity or perhaps a good way of living, a way of being that somehow doesn't spiral down towards more of that greed and confusion. And that in fact even points towards a life of good qualities of peace, of refinement, of love and care. And so we have all kinds of, throughout history, you know, uh, people who have taught different ways towards that life of wisdom, of clarity, of compassion various religions, various techniques, various practices. And we ourselves, you know, are drawn to something like a meditation retreat or a Dhamma talk or what have you, with some sense of possibility. Otherwise, why bother? And underneath all of these things, there's this question that we could ask. What is it that is so um, pervasive that emerges with such insistence, subtlety but uh, thoroughness that causes the kinds of confusion, the drives, the, the sorrow, the grasping. Why does this? Why does this happen? What's going on? And that was, of course, the very question the Buddha was asking, right? Because that's just another way of talking about suffering. It's a way of talking about suffering. And. You know, we have in our modern vocabulary added to the observation of the energies and the push and the confusion, the raggedness. We have things like uh, 
descriptions of neural networks and hormonal systems and that point towards a kind of uh, biological, physiological subtlety. But still, when we're talking about understanding and looking to really do something to make a difference, we, all, we always come back to the same territory. And that's the sense of where's the fuel for this insanity? What drives it? Why does it keep going? And that's what I'll speak about tonight. The the human organism, any, actually any sensitive organism, is responding to the environment with pulls and pushes, you know, towards and away from what is wanted and not wanted. And this is organismic, physiological, uh, basic. And occurs with each contact with, let's say, the yeast with sugar or the snail with salt and the pulling away. And whether it's just a you know, one-celled organism or a very simple organism reacting to very simple chemicals, or it's a highly complex, multicellular, multi-systemic organism like the human being responding to the environment with those same kinds of forces is not that big a difference, actually, is it? But when the complexity of this mind, this human mind, this human brain, and the whole body-mind system reaches the kind of stage that human complexity has, we not only have this Uh, sort of biochemical reactivity. We have uh, the psycho part of psychosomatic that just ups the ante incredibly because now it's not just what's warm or cold, what's sweet or sour, and so on. It ties in to the totality 
of memory, intelligence, perception, culture, personality. Each of you is smart enough to elaborate that in your own way that will make sense. But it's in that uh, in that body-mind complexity that the patterns that I'm going to talk about have built up. And these are the patterns of the same elemental drives written across the whole of our lives. And I'll offer them in the same framework that the Buddha offered them because it's so simple and brilliant. The Buddha spoke about thirst, tanha. And he named specifically three of these thirsts, the thirst for pleasure, the thirst for becoming, and the thirst for non-becoming. And if we look at these at both the physiological and the psychological level, extending it from the individual psychological level into the relational, we get a pretty powerful picture of how motivating these thirsts are and how they permeate our lives. And it provides quite a picture of what it would mean for these to diminish and even cease to dominate us. When we talk about the yeast to sugar, or we talk about the human being actually to sugar, monkeys to sugar, you know, there are uh, good reasons that the organism goes for sugar. It's a quick energy source, and uh, there's a reason that it is so pleasurable to us. Well, there's reasons for so many of these physical pleasures. And there's reasons for the psychological pleasures as well. So the seeking, the seeking of pleasure is adaptive. It helps, it has helped us survive and brought about not only our individual organisms, but our cooperative searching for pleasures has been a powerful force in the evolution of species generally, but of humankind. 
by working together, we've managed to obtain food in ways that any individual would never be able to do. In working together, we've obtained and made clothing. And then, of course, as this elaborates over time, given the power of the human in intelligence, agricultural systems, cities, countries, nations, science, technology that has brought about pleasures. It's not a difficult thing to see this. But what I want to point to is that these, this thirst is operating at a level or in a way that is like the iceberg. It's mostly invisible to us. We might say, oh, sure, I like ice cream. I know what Greg is talking about. But do we actually, are we sensitive to? Do we know? Have we really examined how the, we're constantly orienting our lives towards pleasure? That we're constantly, you know, putting on clothing on, taking clothing off, putting something in our mouth, taking something out of our mouth, looking for the right combination of uh, body temperature and fullness of food and pleasant environments and everything, constantly adjusting ourselves. And that we have learned not only how to adjust our immediate physical environment, but how to orient our whole lives to get pleasure. So what do we seek? Well, we're brilliant creatures, so we also seek intellectual pleasure and we seek artistic pleasure. We're social creatures, and so we seek social pleasure. We want the pleasure of each other. And what will we do to get it? Just about anything. Just about anything. Without it, actually, we die. And without the social pleasures driving us, how much do you think that all of the great accomplishments that have been attained by humankind would actually manifest? Sure, people are curious, but people love pleasure. You know? And so someone, let's say, gets a patent and they get a bonus and they get more a bigger Winnebago or something, they get better, better food, or, you know, if it's a, a, a beautiful woman, she gets a handsome man, or if it's a man, he gets a beautiful woman, or, you know, whatever partnering is going to happen. All kinds of personal human rewards come out of this. Pleasure, the urge for pleasure. And the fighting for pleasure. You want to keep your house warm. Fine, let's go take someone else's oil because we're all out. Or it's cheaper over there. 
and they say, stay away from my oil, stay away from my land. This is my place of pleasure. It doesn't look like pleasure when you get to these gross things, but what is it? What's driving it? What's driving the news? Remembering that pleasure has as its mirror image the other side of the coin is pain. The ending of pain is pleasurable. So we seek to end pain. And the ending of the pleasure is painful and we want to avoid the pain. So they're completely connected and all the things that we do that drive us. Not just the big stuff, that's really important. It's like, like this constant search for the next set of pleasures and to maintain the ones we've got, even if it's just how comfortable I am while I'm sitting. The very next moment, when we meditate, we see this stuff. We see oh, some little adjustment or some little itch or the mind has something in it we don't like. Well, tough luck. But we seek pleasure. We want the pleasurable mind states as well, not just the pleasurable physical stuff. And if it's not interesting enough when we meditate, well, we'll just go to the kitchen and hang out with the cook and talk a little bit, you know, or whatever. Or if my spiritual path isn't entertaining enough, I'll go find something else that is. So it's kind of, in that sense, uh, permeates our lives. And there's a specific subset of pleasure that is a big enough subset that the Buddha gave it its own uh, specific thirst, which is the thirst for becoming, the thirst to constantly maintain this life, the thirst for the self to be secure, to survive, And in terms of this physical survival, of course, we have all kinds of things that we pretty much take for granted in our relatively affluent culture in at least, you know, the developed countries. Survival is not quite the day-to-day -day question that it is elsewhere in the world. So we're a little bit cut off from that sense of, how am I going to stay alive? But there's something we're not cut off from. Well, actually we are, but we can see it very clearly, which is this sense of the survival of the egocentric self. 
So before we understand that, we have to look at what, how elemental this is. I take us back to the infant and the infant having the urge for the pleasure of nurture of the mother, the pleasure of protection of warmth. And what happens if the infant doesn't get that? Well, the infant is completely incapable of taking care of him or herself. So the infant will die. So this pleasure is intimately associated with survival. But the survival is dependent on others. So for that infant being seen, being recognized as existing, is a matter of life and death, literally, not figuratively. It's also the case that as this organism, this human being, grows into the world, that the sense of who I am in the world shifts perhaps somewhat from the mother, the father, the siblings out into others in their environment, friendships and peers all around, moving into the society, into the culture. And everything that defines who I am for each of us is coming back from the world around us. If it's just this individual organism looking out at the world, which is a physical impossibility, it wouldn't be, but if we just imagine it, there's no sense of I am because there's no other. There's just, just going about trying to find food and so on, but it's the sense of self comes up and is magnified and stabilized with others. So my survival now is dependent upon being with you, being seen by you. Just like the infant, only it just gets more and more complex. My sense of self and my accomplishments. Hear me, see me, acknowledge me, and I begin to build strategies to be seen, to be acknowledged, to exist. I accomplish things, I make noise, I'm beautiful, I'm sexy, I'm a, I'm a, 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 a fast runner, I'm a good artist, 
I'm a meditation teacher. I'm really smart. I'm funny. Each joke is a bid. Please look at me. I'll say another funny thing if you do. And so we develop capacities, strategies, ways of being in the world that say, please look at me. So now, each look, this comes back to pleasure, each look feels good. It's a flush that we feel physically. It's a pleasant sensation. It's a very tense sensation, a lot of stress, very contingent, very iffy, but hey, it's the best I've got. It fills me up. And in ways, again, that are mostly invisible to us, just like this hunger for, for pleasure, the hunger to become and to exist is motivating us in ways we don't even see. So we have these encounters, and it feels like a more or less normal encounter, but every, every moment we see, oh, did they hear me? Did they understand me? What did they think? How am I doing? How's this going? Always very shaky, always looking for the food. Huh? You know what I mean? Do you know what I'm looking for the food? Do you understand? Right? I hope you understand. I hope this is a good talk. God, if it's not, I'm a sunk. Right? And Again, when we meditate, when the mind can get still enough to see in the present moment these movements of the mind, movements of the heart, and even the movements of the face, you know, the way we look at each other or we're making a bid for... Aren't we? Aren't we, though? But we aren't sensitive to it. But when, the, when mindfulness increases and there's enough tranquility that the noise field of our usual social habits diminishes, then we can begin to see all of these little micro-movements of the hunger for becoming. It's called bhava tanha, tanha, thirst, hunger, for becoming Baba. So this constant thirsting, again, is, is operating largely invisibly. But we are so sensitive the actual sense doors so refined and the mind, so quick, so delicate, building such filigree, such incredibly complex uh, uh, sort of key slots for the world to plug into so very sensitive 
that the world becomes too much. So we're seeking pleasure, we're seeking to be seen, drinking, give me, give me, fill me. And then there's the place where we can't handle the world. It's way too much and we have to shut off. Maybe we just have to go to sleep. Maybe we just have to close our front door. Maybe maybe a little drinky poo would help, a little bit of alcohol. Or maybe I can escape through what? Work or sex or meditation. Maybe I can escape through dulling my senses because it's just too much. And where we see this in the kind of the, 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 the world of tremendous sorrow and pain, let's say, of inner cities, where the systemic racism and social injustice is so huge that this kind of hopelessness creates exactly the field for addiction. Get me out. And that's the path out. This is not the path that goes through. This is the path of invisibility, of escape. This is called the bhava tanha, the hunger to not be, to not become, the hunger to get out. And in direct interpersonal contact, what we can see when the mind gets still enough is that being in this kind of direct view of another can be too much. Stay out. Don't see me. Instead of the bhavatanha, which gets filled up by being seen, oh, please, see me. This is great. Oh, it feels so good. Is, no, no, too much. So there's a fear of being seen, a fear of intimacy. And this is not just for those of you, those of me who have some pathology. This is elemental. This is all of us. This is all of us. For all of us, there is this aspect of too muchness of the world. And we each have our own strategies for buffering, for hiding, for getting out. For some of us, it might be to a very visible kind of uh, withdrawal into quietness or getting away from or, uh, you know, just disappearing. You can be in a room full of people and kind of disappear, right? I'm sure many of you have had developed that strategy quite well, let's say, in elementary school. So you just kind of disappear. But some of us may have the strategy of a lot of noise out here, 
and it hides what's back here, right? You can see this. That's all you get, pal, right? So there's a persona out there that's very visible that even seems to be saying, see me, see me, look at me. And then there's this place of too much, too sensitive, got to hide. I can't let you see my inadequacy, my fear, my brokenness, or just my sensitivity. It's just too much. And so there's all the strategies we go through life developing ways of being in the world where I can maintain that sense of protection, of safety. So, when we talk about something like right effort, and we're looking into releasing, letting go of the fears or the greed or the anger and so on. We say, okay, we want to abandon these unwholesome qualities. We want to release them. We want to move beyond them. And we want to cultivate these wholesome qualities loving-kindness, mindfulness, concentration. You know, it's easy to put that down, let's say, on a piece of paper, and we could all agree to it. But why is it tricky? Why doesn't the heart just go to these wonderful, beautiful qualities? So we see that these kinds of the, these thirsts I'm talking about, this tanha. It's like a, living in a pressurized container, pressurized in the sense of this forcing forward of urging and fear. How can I get and fill up this life with enough, enough stability of myself by, you know, everybody seeing me, taking care of me, hearing me, admiring me maybe? Or how can I get enough distance between me and everything that's not okay? How can I fill up with all the pleasures and stabilize and get to a place where, ah, constant pleasure, it's great. And of course, I mean, we're not stupid. We know it's impossible, but this is not a thinking thing. So there's this pressure where we're constantly out of balance, constantly seeking, urging, wanting. Sometimes it's big, Sometimes it's little. But this is the instability, the unattainability of ever satisfying all these hungers. It's not possible. Do you think that if you ever got enough 
let's say, really good food that you would stop wanting the really good food, no, you'd actually want more of it. If you had the really great, I don't know what people like, but let's say silk or fur coats or something like that, that you would stop wanting that? No, you just want more of it. We see it all around us. It's the cyclic greed of the privileged. But it's also for us, our own level of greed, wanting more. You know, we can look at our houses and we can look at our cars or our clothing or our jobs or our, you know, our bookshelf or whatever it is, wherever we happen to accumulate. Can you ever be protected enough, finally and formally done with protection, with getting out, with safety, with invisibility? As long as there's sensation, the answer is no. Why does Facebook thrive? It's all about see me, right? It's all about I exist. Facebook is the internet's answer to Bhava Tanha. <laughs> Amazon is the answer to Kama Tanha. So if we understand that sense of, you know, the subtlety of these pressures and the enormity at the same time of them, of these urges, then we understand that things cultivating wholesome qualities, releasing becoming free of the unwholesome qualities, inclining our lives in a wholesome direction. It's not trivial work. It's really not. It's quite something that we've undertaken here. But understanding the kind of stuff I'm talking about gives energy gives a sense of hope. Because as long as we don't know this is happening, it doesn't mean it's not happening. It's still happening. And we're just slaves to it. But we wake up to it and we say, whoa, I didn't know it was that bad. But at least we're looking at it and we have a sense of, oh, where is there in my life the diminishing of this? Where can I begin to see what it feels like? to not be constantly off balance. To not be constantly in the stress and drive of thirst. Where do we feel that? Where do we see that? You know, we look for those places of contentment We look for those places where happiness doesn't come 
from the more of and, and less of and manipulating. It comes from how we meet whatever is present. It's all about the relationship. In the human realm, it's about how we relate to each other. Uh, is my being with you all about satisfying some kind of thirst, either to get away from you or to have you acknowledge and help fill me up, pleasure me? Or is my relationship to you such that it's not driven by thirst, that I can be with you in contentment and stability? And where do we see that in our lives? Can we acknowledge that? Can we begin to see, ah, this is different. This is a different way of living. From the constant pressure of hunger, to the diminishing and cessation and a happiness that comes not from this never-ending cycle. It's quite a possibility. And our meditation practice is a part of a path. It's not the whole path, but it really helps us see clearly. It combines with all these other path factors, right? Cultivating wise understanding, right view, which is what we're doing in this talk. This is a practice that we're engaged in right now. This is a path factor we're cultivating right view with this investigation. That shifts the mind, right intention, from these intentions, rather than constantly trying to feed the hungers, our speech and our action, even our livelihood, shifts. and the refinement that comes with that allows greater effort, mindfulness, and concentration to develop. So the whole path is not just this formal meditation practice. So hopefully that will inspire our good work together.